Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, help us as we worship you in the word that you would teach us, teach us well, help us to learn for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 4, please. Imagine yourself as a 22-year-old truck driver. And think of truck driving as the one skill that you possess that will enable you to earn a living. And imagine that you just started to work for an oil delivery company, and they really like you. After a few months, you have a meeting with the owners, and they tell you that they're a different kind of company. When they find an employee like you that they like, they want to keep them for the long haul. So as a gesture of their commitment to you, they purchase you a new pickup truck. A few months go by and you realize uh, that this sense of this company, it really is like a big family. Every month there's a barbecue, you're getting together, there's, there's a really an interconnectedness between you and your work life and you're really enjoying it. They, they regularly give you bonuses in the form of gift cards to your favorite restaurants. At the one-year mark, they sit you down again. And they ask you to make a commitment to the long-term employment with their company. As an incentive, they're willing to purchase for you a mid-sized house large enough for you to grow a family in. What do you, what do you say to this? Does anyone say no to this? This is my skill, and they're, they're not only providing you with a weekly paycheck, but bonuses and, and a family atmosphere, and, and then these extras that, that make living in New England doable, a, a vehicle and a house. This is just incredible. It seems perfect. You're settling into your home, and you're enjoying your pickup truck. You're enjoying the, the company barbecues and enjoying your work. You're satisfied with what the company has provided for you. One day the boss pulls you aside on a Monday and hands you a package and says, um, hey, on your way to your second oil delivery, please drop this off at such and such a location. And you say, well, what is it? He looks at you and says, don't worry about it. The scenario repeats itself regularly. You're wondering what you're delivering. After a month of this, you start asking questions and the answer is always the same. Don't worry about it. Inside, um, you're feeling turmoil. You don't know what's going on. You, you think you just can't keep doing this. So you're overcome and you open the box. As you open it, you find inside a large quantity of cocaine. I wanted to say like a finger or something, but I thought you'd be grossed out by that. <laughs> you find a large quantity of uh, cocaine and you think, oh, I am in up to my eyeballs, and I don't know how to get out. There's no way to get out of this. When you're in, you're in. Now you have a real problem. There's no way to get out. You are in bondage. You have committed yourself to a company that's involved in organized crime. And this is not what you were bargaining for. You feel betrayed. You feel used. And you feel hopeless. Ladies and gentlemen, to yield our allegiance to rules and regulations as a means to be in a right 
spiritual condition before God is to fall under the influence of the doctrine of demons. You're in for more than you bargained for. I want to say this carefully, and I want to say this guardedly, and I want to say this kindly. I fear that we live in a day, and and this day has been around for a long time, and so it's not really anything new, where Christianity has become more about what we can do for God than what He has done for us. That is contrary to the gospel. That's a false gospel. That undermines the very nature of the gospel if we think we can do for God in such a way as to repay in any way the depth, the beauty, the wonder, the riches of what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. I believe, believers, that we need to guard ourselves as we communicate the Word, as we listen to the Word, that we do not espouse unwittingly, unknowingly, doctrines which have their source in demons. Galatians 4, verses 8 and following, it seems so connected to the rest of the letter, and it is, but it doesn't seem to have the punch that it really does have unless we really gather what Paul is driving at here. There is a lot, there is a great punch to this section of Galatians 4. In fact, I would say you could spend three weeks meditating on this in different ways and, and really get another angle and avenue that this passage, it is so, so profound and important. Beginning in verse 8, the Bible says this, Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. We're going to try to gather this. And and I'm going to do so measuredly and slowly. And I want to try to keep my, my manner even. Because this happens to be a topic that I, I can be really passionate about, and I'm not going to do this without passion, but I want to try to keep those passions at a, an even keel. To this point in the book of Galatians, in the middle section, we have seen that God has set the stage for people to understand that being right with Him unto salvation comes by faith. Being right with Him unto salvation comes by faith. In chapter 3, verses 1-14, through 14, we get this general idea. We began our spiritual life through the Spirit by faith. In chapter 3, verses 15-22, to 22, the law does not produce the promise, but pushes us toward the solution of our crushing sin. 
In chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, the fulfillment of the promises has come in Christ. Through faith, we have been united to Christ and have become heirs of the promise. And then in just the previous section, now just, just so you know, like there's no way you're going to remember all of that. I made extra copies of notes available on the, the secretary's desk because there are a lot of these lists in here. And what I don't want you to do is to get lost this morning as we navigate through this. But I do want you to concentrate through this and then um, get, have access to those notes to really re-establish uh, and, and uh, provide furtherance of these truths. As we looked at the last section, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we noted this generally. Through redemption, found only in Christ Jesus, the crushing power of the law has been removed, and true intimacy with the God of glory has been established, resulting in eternal riches. Now that's one sentence, and it probably has terrible grammar in it. Forgive me if it's bad grammar. I hope you get what that sentence is trying to say. Through redemption, found only in Christ Jesus, the crushing power of the law has been removed, and true intimacy with the God of glory has been established, resulting in eternal riches. This morning, in this next short section, God unmasks for us the real battleground related to religion that has the law as its taskmaster. Did you catch that? God unmasks for us the real battleground related to religion that has the law as its taskmaster. It's easy sometimes to sit in church and to miss some of the truths that come your way. I know what I have to be on my game. I have to be in the Spirit and, and focused at every second through a sermon. Right? Because I'm delivering it. The nature of life is that while you're sitting there, there are competing interests. And so you can miss truths that are coming your way. And so I want to encourage you to not let your mind drift. Please understand the contrast that Paul is making from traditional views of religion and law-keeping. This subject is not only related to the salvation of souls, but also to daily practice in the Christian life. The Bible is filled, filled, filled with requirements. It's filled. As you read command after command that are interwoven into the storyline of Scripture, you see the, the, the call. You see the task. You see the do this and the do not do that. Now, we don't disregard them because that would be foolhardy. But there are two different ways, that uh, two main approaches that people have taken with the requirements of Scripture. The first way is traditional. And whether people realize it or not, this is almost unilaterally what you will hear in Bible studies and messages. This is almost unilaterally what you will hear as people convey the word. And this is what I'm trying to caution you and myself against, both as a speaker and as a listener. Ready? Obedience to the commands of Scripture gives us a right standing before God. So obedience gives us a right standing before God. This is whether 
whether implicit or explicit, whether it's just insidious or right out in, in the front, this is a regular occurrence as people preach God's Word. They talk about commands, and God will be pleased with you, and God will accept you, and God will, will be happy, and then God will reward you if, and these kinds of things. This is one approach to dealing with the commands of Scripture. And I want to caution you against that because I believe it is a, an opponent. It's an opponent to the Gospel. There's a second way, and obviously I feel the right way, is God gives us a right standing before Himself, before God, through Jesus Christ. God gives us a right standing before Himself through Jesus Christ. My right standing is not because I accepted Jesus and then I did X, Y, and Z. My right standing before God is Jesus. End of the sentence. This second approach results in the commands of Scripture being met in our experience. Did you hear what I just said? The right standing that God gives us through Jesus Christ results in fulfilling the demands of Scripture in my daily life. Not every second, but in the course of my life, we'll see the Spirit doing what only God can do and bringing the commands of Scripture to bear in my life. So, the contrast is not between those who believe that the commandments of Scripture are valid and those who think that they don't matter. That is not the contrast. Like, that's black and white. To think that the commands of Scripture don't matter means there's something wrong with your view of God and the Scriptures. The difference is, how do we get there? How do we get to the place where God's Word is fulfilled in my life? Is it by sincere effort? Or is it by absolute surrender? Listen, if you're absolutely surrendered to God, God will do His work in your life. When Paul talked about this, he said, I am not behind any of these great apostles. Not in any way. I worked harder than them all. But it was not me. It was the grace of God working in me. He learned that the secret, and it's not a secret because God tells us in the Scriptures, the secret of the Christian life is absolute and utter surrender to God, letting Him be God. Shocker. You, you can give God permission to be God. No, he's always God, whether you like it or not. Will I place myself in his loving hands and say, God, do with me as you will? And when I do, he brings forth the meeting of the requirements of Scripture. Now, they've been met once and for all in Christ, right? So I know my eternal condition, my justification is there through Christ. But also in my daily experience, as I surrender my will to God, through the Spirit and Christ Himself, God brings forth the meeting of these demands. Our attention this morning will be primarily on this first view, this, what I say is errant view, and what we're going to unveil as a demonic view. Our attention will be primarily on this first view and seeing that it has arisen from the doctrines of demons. Obedience to the commands of Scripture gives us a right standing before God. That is the, that's the premise here that we are trying to unearth. Now we believe that the Scriptures are valid and the commands are valid. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and so we want to obey this. 
And we also believe that when God says don't kill someone, that, that really is applicable. So we don't kill anybody. And then we see a command from, from Jesus, re, re, really rendering God's command from the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So here we are as people, and we're trying to obey the demands of Scripture, and there are a lot of them, and we're, we're trying to obey, and, 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 and maybe we're having a good week. We're really getting it done. At some point along the way, you will violate you will violate one of the commands of Scripture. You will. And here's the bad news for you. You ready for the bad news? God demands perfection. Continually. Bad news. How do I know? How can you make such a radical statement? Well, let's just review some basic Bible truth. First of all, in the book of Matthew verse five, uh, chapter 5 and verse 48, You'll remember Jesus saying this, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You'll remember the short charge from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, that's that's pretty compelling, correct? Well, I have I have two more verses I want you to turn with me to that are even more compelling. Ready? Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21 and verse 8, the Bible says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, what's that next one say? And all liars, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Whew, wait a second now. I thought I was coming to church and you were going to encourage me in the gospel. Yeah. I want to tell you something. I want to first discourage you away from false gospels. In chapter 22, Revelation 22, look please with me at verse 15. Here God reiterates the same problem. He's talking about those that are inside the city with God in this heavenly glory that He has provided. It says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. We think, all right, well, all the bad people are out there. What's the rest of it say? And everyone who loves and practices what? Now, everyone thinks, you know, this is just common practice. Well, if you're a pedophile, you don't go to heaven. If, if you are Hitler or Mussolini, you don't go to heaven. Everyone is on board with this. Well, most people are on board with this. How about people that lie? Well, it's just a white lie. It's just a, just a little thing. I have bad news for you. That, that little lie keeps you from a perfect standing with God, keeps you from heaven. James brings the hammer down. In James 2.10, it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. This means that covetousness equals murder, equals 
blasphemy equals idol worship. This system offers no hope. This system of thinking is at war with the gospel and with God Himself. Jesus did it for you. He laid His life down to bear your sin and to provide you with a record that is on par, equal to His. Perfection. Any religion in evangelicalism or outside of evangelicalism that undermines that gospel is undermining the very teaching of God is at war with God. Now let's head back to Galatians chapter 4. This system produces bondage. It's a bondage of different clothing, but it is bondage. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8 again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In other words, he's saying, before you were saved, you catered to pagan practices. You were enslaved to those pagan practices. You were enslaved. That's before you came to salvation. Your form of religion brought you into slavery. Verse 9 says, after salvation, your form of religion that you are heading down a road toward is bringing you back into the same kind of slavery. Different form of religion. Same slavery. Look what it says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Do you see how it's same slavery, just different clothing? Bondage to these elements of religion, first of all, don't save. It says in verse 9 that they are weak. They're unable to save. Secondly, The bondage to this type of religion doesn't provide an inheritance. It says in verse 9, worthless. Worthless. The word there, the the Greek word is patokos. It means poor. It does not provide you with any inheritance. Bondage to these elements in verse 11 is unfruitful. He says in verse 11, I'm afraid I have been laboring over you in vain. Now, just so that we don't get off track, start to steal the thunder from a later message, he's not actually wondering whether he's laboring in vain. that's That's a way to really rope them in. Hey, listen, if you are deviating from the true gospel, you, you're the, there's unfruitfulness at hand. He very clearly, before this and after this, talks about them as being true brethren. He talks about them as, as those that have embraced Christ and have the benefits that Christ has produced for them. So he's not actually saying, I'm, I'm afraid you're not saved. He's saying, I'm afraid if you keep following after those doctrines, you're going to have an unfruitful Christian life in vain. Bondage to these elements of religion is slavery to doctrines of demons. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Pagan practices that they involved themselves were an enslavement to false gods. Now, God's not afraid of false gods, is He? Why? Because they don't breathe and they don't look and they don't talk and they don't do. They're not anything. An idol is nothing. God's not afraid of them. 
However, it's not very healthy for those that worship them because it doesn't produce anything for them other than maybe some emotional feeling. Verse 9, he talks about religion. Even those that are based upon law codes that are written in the Scriptures is enslavement to, in verse 9, elementary principles of the world. Now, it's hard to say Greek word, stoikeion. It has the idea of demonic spirits. If you followed the word stoikeion throughout the New Testament, you would find a lot of times it's talking about spiritual beings. Spiritual beings. It can be properly translated as it is rendered here, principles. Remember that principles come from somewhere. So, in reality, the way that it's, it's translated here as principles, and the way that it could be translated as spirits, really the answer is it's probably both. Spirits who bring forth principles that lead us into bondage. The basis for traditional views that minimize the relevance of the gospel in the Christian life is demonic. I'm going to say it again. The basis for traditional views that minimize the relevance of the gospel in the Christian life is demonic. So, in order for us to understand this well, and I want for us to understand it well, first we're going to notice it from Galatians 4, and then we're going to look at a number of other Scripture passages to really bring this into a a clear understanding that anything that takes my gaze off of the gospel and puts it on some other religious endeavor is actually has its source in demonic activity. First of all, I want for us to notice, and we've already kind of introduced this a little bit in this passage, while religion is weak, verse 9, unable to save, Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So where religion is weak, Jesus redeems. While religion is bankrupt, worthless in verse 9, Jesus has made us heir of all things. Look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What are you striving for? Why are you trying to attain things that will moth and rust when God has already given you everything that's great? Why would you invest your heart and your life and your soul into that which is only going to fail you? God has already, through Jesus, made you an heir of everything that lasts forever. Thirdly, in this short discussion, while religion keeps us from knowing God, verse 8. Remember it says, when you did not know God. Jesus has, through redemption, been the agent through whom we have received the Spirit of God, resulting in intimacy. Did you catch that? Religion makes us so that we don't know God. Jesus, through redeeming us, has been the agent of giving us the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, what does He do in verse 6? He cries out, Abba, Father. There's this relationship that comes through the Spirit, that comes through Jesus 
Redemption through Jesus results in the reception of the Spirit, which results in intimacy with God. Religion can't do that for you. It actually just alienates you from God. It does not draw you near to Him. Next, while religion keeps us unfruitful, verse 11, in vain, Jesus produces much fruit in the lives of those who abide in Him. Now, to, to find that fruitfulness, you have first the contrast of, of the not fruit in verse 11. But then you can expand out to chapter 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Verse five, uh, chapter 5 and verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. Or you can go outside of the book of Galatians and look at what Jesus Himself said in John chapter 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in Him, He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do what? Nothing. Now, so you can see from the argument of Galatians chapter 4 that Paul, ultimately God, is arguing that religion, strict adherence to a law code as a means of standing in a right condition before God, is at odds with what God has already given to us in Christ. Can we see that clearly from the context of Galatians 4? Yes? Do we need to recover it? We're good. Okay. So, with that being said, we want to take a look at a couple of passages outside of the book of Galatians, and they are going to tell us the exact same thing. With different words. Take a look, first of all, at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is trying to tell us, to show us, to illustrate to us, that the entrance into and the continuance in the Christian life is based upon the gospel, which is based upon Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me a little, in a a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I fear a divine, excuse me, sorry, start that again. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, the New King James translates it a little differently, and it just says, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you... Accept a different gospel from the one you've accepted. You put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that it might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Look down at verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine 
the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Did you catch what he just said? I want you to understand that someone that's not preaching the same gospel is not preaching the same gospel. Did you catch that? That's what he said. He said it with different words. He says, I want to undermine those who are saying that they're saying the same thing that we are, when in fact, they are not. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, okay, he, he gets really hot and heavy here at the end, right? He's getting really upset, and he, he's being very forceful in what he's saying at the end. But what is it that we read in the process that, that he's upset about? Verse 3. Verse 3 is what he's so upset about, and he is warning everyone that will listen in Corinth, in Warwick, in the first century, in the 21st century. He says in verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, or, as I like it better translated in the New King James, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity, simplicity that is in Christ. There's something else, something better, you think. Something you think will make me more spiritual, more righteous, more holy. Well, it won't. It can't. It's not the gospel. It cannot make you right before God. Ask millions and billions of people that have tried to make themselves right before God by strict adherence to some code, and they will tell you they have failed. You failed. I failed. We failed together. What is our only hope? Our only hope is the offer of the gospel that I have true and lasting righteousness only in Christ. And Paul says, which means God says here, that anything that shifts you away from the simplicity that is in Christ is a doctrine of demons. Satan himself is empowering that teaching. Huh. He doesn't just say it here. Let's follow a little further. Colossians chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What, what is he saying? The same way you received Him, faith, is the same way you walk in Him. What's the answer? Faith. Begin, continue, and same thing, as you received him, so you walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Why would I abound in thanksgiving? Because I realize that my standing before God is secure, not because of me, but because of him. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the stoicheia, elementary principles 
or elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You see how he's talking about that which contrasts the pure gospel is elementary or elemental spirits. It's the same thing he's saying in Galatians chapter 4. Verse 9, For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled. You have been made complete in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Then he goes on in verses 11 through 15 to tell us about the benefits that are ours through Christ. Then in verses 16 to 23, he condemns the uselessness of religion. He condemns the uselessness of religion. Folks, Religion is not something to play around with. We don't dabble in religion. Stay on the outskirts and say, yes, yes, we can involve ourselves in this religious activity, but not really be part. Paul is condemning religion. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to these things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings? Listen carefully to verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And what does he tie all of this to? Well, in verse 8 and in verse 20, he tells us there are elemental spirits involved. That's called doctrines of demons. The demons don't want you to violate the Scriptures. They want you to feel good about your strict adherence to scriptures so that you will trust in you and you can't save you. Satan doesn't have any problem with good doobies. He has problems with people that trust Jesus. He doesn't have any problem if I'm up here proclaiming to you the do's and don'ts of scripture. No problem whatsoever. Bunch of moral people, they'll feel good about themselves. They'll leave feeling like they're better than when they came. They're really spiritual people short-circuiting the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that saves. Jesus is the only thing that saves. And as soon as you feel good about you, you think you're your savior. First Timothy chapter 4, please. This is not the only place he says it. it the, the scriptures are packed with it. First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what? Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What are they telling us? They're forbidding marriage. 
and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, God, uh, every, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. What's the, the doctrine of demons, again, is putting fleshly restrictions in place as a means, as a means of attaining some spiritual standing. Now, let's just pause for a second. You saying no to something is not demonic. You not eating the extra slice of pizza is not demonic. You not having a second bowl of ice cream is not demonic. You ordering your life in a disciplined fashion is not demonic. You saying, I will read my Bible every day. It's not demonic. I will pray every day. It's not demonic. I will go to church when I, whenever I have the opportunity. That's not demonic. I'm not saying that, that activities are demonic. It's when we think that those activities will make us spiritual. Will make us right with God. God will be happy with me now. If I'll only read my Bible seven hours a day, God will be happy with me finally. He'll get off my back. No. That's a doctrine of Demons. There's only one thing. There's only one person that makes you acceptable before God. His name is Jesus. Have you trusted him? First John brings more of this to our attention. Now, Satan's strategies are not static. You know what I mean by that? They're not still, okay, here's, here's his script and we have read it. They move, he adapts, he adjusts, he is not a one-trick pony. Listen carefully. If he can't get you with false religion regarding restrictions, he has no problem adjusting his plans and enticing you with a false religion of indulgence. Follow this with me. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Sometimes we give Satan too much credit as if he has the ability to do things he can't do and we don't recognize that he is under limitation from a sovereign God. And sometimes we don't give him enough credit as though we think we've got him pigeonholed into how he likes to do things. And what I want to tell you is he doesn't care. He doesn't follow rules. I have in my wallet my, my CAC card. My CAC card is my Navy ID. gives me access to all kinds of things in the Navy. And on it, um, it tells everyone that, that knows what a CAC card is that I am protected, protected as a chaplain because I am a non-combatant, which means if I were to be captured in a hostile environment, they're supposed to treat me with dignity and respect. That's great if you have a group of people that follow rules. Warfare, on the other hand, not so much. So basically, I get to be the non-combatant, not carrying a weapon, and exposed to the same dangers. That, that's the, the idea. What, what's, what do we, Satan doesn't follow rules. He's not going to look on your cat card and say, oh, wait a second, I see here that you're protected as a non-combatant. Uh, we won't shoot you. He doesn't care. He doesn't have to follow a script. He observes you. He observes me, and he knows where we will fail. And he doesn't attack us where we're strong. He attacks us where we're weak. Here in Revelation chapter 2, I want you to just notice in a few different verses that Satan 
also uses the tactic of indulgence in addition to the tactic of restriction. Verse 6 of Revelation 2, he says, yet you have this, or, or yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, that doesn't tell you a whole lot, but if you know anything about the Nicolaitans, they were indulgent people. They, they, they didn't think, because they, they believed in a, a forerunner to what became Gnosticism, they didn't think that the body, that, that matter, matter was bad, and spirit is good, because matter, material, is bad, there's nothing you could do to make it holy anyway, so you may as well just live it up. That was their agenda. We can't make it holy, so we may as well just give in. Now look at chapter 2, now in verses 14 and 15. He says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we have the same thing coming up again. Look at chapter 2 and verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. What's he getting at? Long and the short of it in this section is if you think that because, okay, I'm secure in Christ, now I can live it up, that also is a doctrine of demons. That also is contrary to the gospel. What does the gospel do? What does the gospel do? The gospel, first of all, rescues me from my sin. The sin that will condemn me to an eternity on the outside looking in. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, chapter 22 and verse 15 that we saw earlier. It rescues me from my sin so that instead of me being seen as the liar that I am, I'm seen as righteous like Christ. The gospel rescues me from my sin so I have an eternal right standing before God. It also rescues me every day, folks, every day from living for my own agenda. See, this is why we have commands in the New Testament. Because it's so easy for me to get caught up in what I want, in what I think, in what I know. And if I live my life in that regard, I am not being helpful to me, to my family. I am not living the way God designed me for. God designed me in such a way that I am most happy and joyful and content, yielded to Him. And so He shows me in the commands of Scripture, when you're acting like this, when you're thinking like this, when you're talking like this, when you treat your wife or your children or your coworkers like this, you're outside of my spirits working in you. You're not operating in a way that is going to give you the ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. It's hurting you. The gospel rescues me from this because I see these traits are not why God made me and I'm not going to be satisfied in this way. The gospel says you'll be satisfied 
in me. In me. We could go on. Here's the point. Moving away from the gospel, which is the good news about life in Jesus Christ, has its source in Satan's work. We cannot sit idly by. I fear that many Christians have fallen prey to good moral teaching about the Bible because being good and acting good is a really good idea. None of us are against being good and acting good. The problem is not with a desire to live a life that reflects the commands of Scripture. The problem is the way to accomplish that reflection. Am I putting myself as the driving force behind this? Or am I putting God, the sovereign one, the omnipotent one, as the driving force behind this? When he's the driving force behind it, guess what? True spiritual fruit exists. When I am the driving force behind it, some kind of a sham fruit, some kind of a mock fruit, some kind of a look-alike, you know, look, I got this coach purse for you. It was $3. You've seen them. It's not real. Just has the name on it. Might look like it. Not it. That's what happens in the Christian life when we try to do the commands of Scripture. It's not real. It's not real. It's fake. You might feel good about yourself because it looks better than it looked before. You're not a drunk beating your wife now. I'm commending you. I'm good. I want that to be that way. Just don't think that that is spiritual fruit just because you're not doing that. We need the Spirit to produce real fruit in our lives. This is why I'm constantly pointing you to the Gospel and life in the Spirit. For the Spirit and the Gospel not only bring us into salvation, but also bring about the work of God in our lives. So, I caution us, brothers and sisters, if you are a teacher of Scripture, whether it's one-on-one, in Awana, in VBT, in Sunday school, or from this pulpit, I caution you, do not sacrifice the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity that is found in Christ. Because to do so, I'm not going to say when we do that we are directly influenced by Satan. But I will tell you that we have been influenced when we say those things that are contrary to the gospel. It is because of the work that Satan has laid out before us. And we have been, we have been influenced by it. We cannot stand by. We cannot accept it from ourselves. We must convey the truthfulness and simplicity of the gospel because it's the only thing that gives us a right standing before a holy God. And that's what we desperately need. Let's pray together. Father, your word is is refreshing. Your word is truth. And it contrasts with our common thinking. So we ask that you'd help us 
Help us to believe your word, to believe your truth, to believe you, to know you because you have first known us. Help us, Father, that we would demonstrate and declare the gospel so that people will see that the sufficiency is not of us, but of you. In Jesus' name, amen.